As I was preparing for this sermon, uh, and we're kind of getting, we're kind of going deeper into the wilderness as we look at spiritual practices. Today we're going to look about look at fasting from a different angle. We'll look at prayer next week. We'll look at generosity the week after that. All with this mind uh, that God uses such things to strip away from us the things that are distracting us from the beauty and the riches of God. Um, and I wanted to bring that to you this morning through a story in 1 Samuel chapter 7. But as I was reading through the story, I remembered a, a, a story of my own with one of my, one of my kids, uh, Jude, my youngest child. He's four years old right now. And he has this fascination with trucks and really, you know, steamrollers and tractors and vehicles of all different types, but really small ones, like Hot Wheels. And he also used to have this small backpack. It was about this big, and he would put his toys into the backpack and take them everywhere. It didn't matter if he was going to school or if he was going to Sunday school. Uh, uh, on Sunday mornings, he would bring this backpack, and he would put all of his trucks in there. Well, he accumulated enough Hot Wheels and toy trucks that his backpack was all of a sudden too small to contain them all. And it all came to this fiery conclusion one day when we were about to go out the door and he was on the floor, bless his little heart, in tears as he was stuffing all of his trucks into this plastic backpack and they wouldn't fit. And they were coming out the top and just hot crocodile tears just coming out of his face. And he's just yelling, ah, dad, they won't fit, I can't get them. And I'm all, Jude, you can't, you can't bring all your trucks, you got too many of them, you know, like it's just... And he's like, no, no, I want to break them all. He's crying even though, like his face is red and steam is coming off of his head. And, and I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like it's physics, right? You can't like his backpack is this big. And he's just crying and just, just, just heartbroken. I don't know how it worked out, but I finally got to explain to him like, hey, what if you take the trucks that you don't like as much anymore and you just take the ones that you do? Put your favorite trucks in there. And he did that, took out some, made room in his backpack, and within seconds he's just going out like this, like, I want to go fast, I want to drive fast. And uh, as I was reading through this passage, just recalling that story, if you, can if you can wrap your heart and mind around a story like that, there's not enough room in the backpack you can start to see where this story is going. Uh, verses three through four, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, a, a, an old ancient god, uh, from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the idols of that ancient day, and they served the Lord only. This is a story about making room. Not about making room in your backpack, but making room in your heart for God. And unlike, you know, sometimes we read through epistles and like the letters of Paul and it's written in prose, like, a, like an essay or an argument, this is an historical narrative. It's a story. It's telling us truth in a different way. And so we see it like a story. There's four movements here. And like a good preacher, I have a good alliteration for you. They all start with R. I feel like I worked really hard on that. But the first one is returning. The second one is resistance. The third one is rescue. And the fourth is remembering. You're going to see this in the story. As Israel moves through these uh, seasons of returning, resistance, rescue, and remembering, 
Perhaps your heart and your mind might recall these same movements in your own life, and I hope that your heart is encouraged that this is exactly where God has you. Israel first started by returning to the Lord. What does it mean to return? Well, you notice in that passage, both with Jude and both with Samuel and the Israelites, that to return to somebody or something always entails that you're turning away from something else. If you're turning towards God, you have to be turning away from something else. In this case, it's idols. Now, for some of you, you hear that word idols, and you're like, that is so archaic. Like, maybe this is one of those words in the Bible that seems totally irrelevant to your life. It's not like we have statues on our mantle that we bow and prayer and worship to and offer food and sacrifices to. So you might be tempted to skip over that. But idols are universal. It took the form of statues in the ancient days, but idols are all around. All an idol is in the biblical vernacular is anything or anyone other than God that has the allegiance of your heart. An idol is anything that takes up too much room in your heart. And it could be anything. John Calvin, the great reformer, once said that our hearts are like idol factories. We have the tendency and proclivity to make almost anything into an idol. And they can be big things, right? Like money, sex, and power. But they can also be small things like relationships, hobbies, just your own personal preferences. In the words of Winnie the Pooh, some of the biggest thing, uh, some of the smallest things in life take up the most room in your heart. Israel's idols took on a certain form. Sure, they were statuettes, miniature things that they bowed down to, but what they represented was Israel's own human ingenuity and even superstition their reliance on themselves. If you read the chapter before this, you see that Israel was in a huge mess. Go figure. They're often in a huge mess. Right before this passage, they attacked the Philistines, and they did it completely cut off from relying on God. If you read that story, they actually go into battle without inquiring of the Lord in prayer, and when they get beat up, they think, oh, I'm gonna, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. That was back in that, in that day, that was where God's presence dwelled. They're like, oh, maybe if we, bring God's, if we steal God's furniture and bring it into battle, we'll have some success. Superstition. Now they're relying more on their neighbor's pagan religious beliefs than on God. On their human ingenuity, on their superstition, on pagan worship. And Samuel is calling them to repent. That, that's another word that for some of you might make you cringe. You're like, oh, I hate that word. Maybe for some of you it draws up memories of fire and brimstone preachers preaching judgment. Maybe it draws up in your minds uh, somebody in your life that gave you a bunch of rules and judged you and condemned you all the time. But repentance is perhaps one of the most beautiful, life-giving, liberating words in the Bible. It shows up in the New Testament and it's, one of, it's that single word in the New Testament that explains what we get in a story with Israel returning to God. Uh, it comes from this Greek word uh, metanoia, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. Metanoia means simply change, but specific change. Metanoia means to change one's mind. And that's all repentance is, is to change your mind from what you used to believe. Or most specifically, to change course. It's not a bad word. Everybody in this room has at one point repented of something. Anyone in this room ever changed their mind about something? 
Everybody, I'm changing my mind like all the time. We are functionally repenting from something that we don't want to do anymore. Or we're turning in another direction towards something that we think is a better course. If you've ever taken a U-turn on the street, you have repented. You have, you, have, you have been going in a particular direction and you decided for whatever reason, whether good or bad, I don't want to go that way. I'm going to turn an about face and I'm going to go that way. We can, for all intents and purposes, describe that as repentance. Anytime you change course or you change your mind, you have repented. In this case, Samuel is calling Israel to repent of something. What's taking too much room in their heart? The question for us to ask perhaps right now is what is taking up room in your heart these days? What is taking up too much space in your heart right now? Sometimes they're huge, awful, terrible, obviously sinful things, but other times they're potentially good things, good things that we have turned into ultimate things. And that's the sinister face of an idol. They often start off as good things that we have elevated to a place higher than they deserve. We begin trusting in them over God. The question the story leaves us with is what's taking up room in the backpack of your heart today? It's at this point that Samuel then gathers them all at a all of Israel at Mizpah. He gathers them together to listen to what he's about to say. The text goes on to say, I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. We have put too much stuff in the backpacks of our hearts. We have not made room for God in our hearts. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now that isn't like a condemning type of judgment. He's an actual judge. So he's deciding on things, as was his job. The, the pertinent thing about this passage that I want your eyes to focus on, your heart to focus on, is what they're doing. It says that they pour out water. Most scholars believe that this was a ritualistic act of self-denial. They're preparing their hearts to deny themselves. It's soon followed by fasting. Now, you might ask at this point, maybe some of you have fasted before of something. Maybe you've done Lent. Maybe you've been forced into fasting by uh, parents or by you know, a church group or maybe by yourself, you wanted to try it. Maybe some of you in this room are confused about fasting. Some of you perhaps would say, is, fast, is fasting some kind of magic or manipulation whereby we control the hand of God? Notice uh, Israel is fasting and they're asking God uh, to rescue them, to redeem them, to save them, to forgive them their sins. Perhaps you're, you're, you're kind of connecting those two things and saying, maybe fasting is a way to make God feel bad for me. Like, oh God, I haven't eaten all day. Have mercy upon me. Or some form of manipulation where like, if I, if I do enough righteous acts, God will move his hand. And couldn't be farther from the truth. Fasting is a powerful means of repentance and of humility. In other words, fasting doesn't do anything to God. Fasting doesn't affect God's will at all. Fasting affects your will. Fasting doesn't change God's mind. It reorients our mind and our flesh, our habits, our inclinations, our desires. Uh, 
A couple of scholars writing on this text put it this way. The principle is that the importance of the request that Samuel uh, and Israel is making here causes an individual to be so concerned about his or her spiritual condition that physical necessities fade into the background. You see what they're saying right here? What this passage is teaching is that there comes a point in time in the spiritual person's life where what's happening on the inside is having more weight than what's happening on the outside. You start getting hungry. You start getting thirsty. You start getting a little, uh, a little bit of a lack of content with how things are. The status quo, it's not doing anything for you anymore. Your human ingenuity isn't doing anything for you anymore. Your money, your skills, your resume, your relationships, there's something deeper inside of you crying out for more And it's at that point where you're willing to let loose of those things on the surface in order to dive deeper. This is what's happening in the life of Israel. Perhaps what God would want happening in the life of his church today. Returning means always turning away from something else, something lesser, something that used to occupy your heart more than God. And fasting is simply a very tangible practice and way of training our flesh with the habits of the heart. We talked about that last week, how the heart longs for God when you've been spiritually reborn, but the habits that you've accumulated over the past few years and decades are still there. And you're saying with Paul, like in Romans chapter 7, the thing that I want to do, I don't do it. The thing that I, that I hate, that's the thing that I do. I, found that I find this principle working within me that sin is in control. It's working in my members. I am unable to do the right thing. And so we train the flesh, we train the ideas of the mind to align with this new heart that God has given. That's why the church fasts. You might be saying at this point, well, this is way more intense than I was hoping for on a St. Patrick's Day, you know, uh, sermon. I don't know about this uh, Christianity thing. This seems a little challenging. Yes, it is. Hard to follow Jesus, but it's worth it which is why thousands of people, millions, billions of people throughout history have followed him, some to their death. It is hard. It is challenging. It's worth it. And Samuel at this point, notice that he gathers them at a particular place, Mizpah. What was Mizpah? He actually leaves home base and goes out to this little outpost. This was a military outpost, stationed a little bit away from camp, used to guard from surprise attack. I don't know if this was an accident or a coincidence or if Samuel is trying to get something across to his people to be serious, for a sense of vigilance to come upon them, to stop messing around, to stop cruising, to get off that cruise control and start taking intentional steps of faith because he's worth it. Mizpah, an outpost, a military outpost. Let's leave our comfort and engage in the battle. Church and SB needs a little more Mizpah. Chris Lazo needs a little more Mizpah. Reality SB, we could always use a little more vigilance because we're in it. We're in something that is real and serious and there's incredible implications for it. And all around this church where we are gathered in this room safe from everything out there are people dying apart from God who are connected to you. Thousands of people in the city connected to you. Santa Barbara is a very connected town. 
And in this room is represented thousands of connections of people who have not yet met the true king. And so Samuel, the word of God, calls not just Israel, but this church to vigilance. And so what is, what is he calling them to practically? He's calling them practically to fast. And as we, uh, as we are in the middle of the season of Lent, some of you may take this upon yourself. Nobody's going to force you. Nobody's going to judge you if you don't. For those of you that want to engage in this, what does practical fasting look like? It simply means, for, for our sakes, to give up something that you crave in order to redirect that craving back to God. It's redirecting your heart and your cravings from something to something better. And it's not just doing it for the sake of fasting or for the sake of religious observance. It's doing it for the sake of training. You're getting your body used to what your heart is enjoying and all about. For the, uh, in the same way that Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, our heart, our spirit is willing. It's our flesh that's weak. And so we train our flesh to go after the things of God, which is so firmly implanted in the heart. And so we fast. We teach our bodies, as Paul said. I discipline my body, and I bring it under my control, lest after preaching to others, I myself will be disqualified. I teach my body to align itself with the heart. The problem with many people in the world, humanity in general, is that our hearts follow our bodies and the cravings thereof. In the kingdom of God, those two things get switched as they were meant to be. And fasting is a great and powerful way of doing that. For some of you, God might be putting something on your heart right now. If you didn't already start last week, it's not too late if this is your first week. Maybe God is bringing something in your mind. It could be some type of food. I wouldn't, I wouldn't fast for 40 days unless you've done this a lot and your doctor says that you can. That's a lot of days to go without food, but it might be something small. It might be a type of food. It might be a type of drink. It might be noise, which we'll talk about next week. It might be social media. It might be any television. There's so many things that can distract us. It doesn't matter necessarily the details, but that God is ministering to your heart and saying, I want you to get rid of this for this season so that I can minister to you and so that you can hear me. What in your life is pulling you away from God that he might be calling you to release? And perhaps you would join us corporately as a church we're going to do this until April 18th, the week before Easter, as a means of opening our hearts to God. Now, if you, if you decide to do this, you may encounter some resistance. Here's the second R. As you return to the Lord, you will encounter resistance. Look at verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Look at that. As soon as Israel gets right, as soon as Israel gets a clean vision of who God is and that he is better than anything else that they've ever tasted and seen, as soon as they repent of their, their past trajectory and they go to God is the moment that they encounter resistance. Isn't that funny? Anyone ever here testify? Anyone here can testify to that? Isn't it funny how it's just like the devil to attack you right when you're turning to God, right as you're about to encounter breakthrough, you start to break down, right at that moment where you're about to reach uh, the blessing of God, you hit a wall. 
That is a spiritual principle. That when uh, the spiritual principle that the moment you press into God is the moment that you will encounter resistance. And I say this for you, for some of you that are already encountering resistance, and maybe you just started coming to church like last week or three weeks ago, and life has mysteriously gotten harder. You started pressing into the things of God, and all of a sudden, everyone in your life is you know, attacking you. And you're like, I think I'm doing something wrong. I'm going to lay off of this throttle a little bit. No. You're at mitzvah now. There's no turning back. And you should expect to encounter resistance in the spiritual realm. You should expect to encounter that for everybody that turns away from lesser things towards God, the devil's going to be a little bit salt about that. It's the people who don't encounter resistance or oppression that should be a little bit worried. (laughs) You will encounter resistance. You will encounter walls. And you're going to encounter resistance on three fronts. The New Testament is pretty clear that there are three types of uh, resistance that that the Christian will encounter. The first one is the devil and his demons. Yes, we do believe the word of God, that there is a literal devil and literal demons, just like we believe there's literal angels and a literal God. And he's out. uh, The Bible, I I believe it's the Apostle Peter that says that he roams about looking for someone to devour, like a roaring lion, seeking uh, for someone to destroy. And his influence is felt throughout the world. That's the second front, is the world. Now, I'm not talking about the population in the world. I'm talking about the spirit of the kingdom of darkness that has influence in the world. As a Christian, you shouldn't expect that as you step out of this, this room, that Santa Barbara is going to be super sweet with the way of Jesus about you. You'll encounter some difficulties. That's okay. The third area of resistance is inside of us. It's the flesh, as Paul refers to it. Our human resources, proclivities, inclinations, habits, behaviors, body, cravings. The battle is on three fronts. The devil, the, uh, the spirit of the world around us, and our own flesh. Notice that nowhere in there does the Bible list people. The people aren't our enemy. The people are not our enemy. Paul says, we do not battle against flesh and blood. We don't battle against people. No matter how bad they've been to you, they're not your enemy. No matter how uh, not used to them you are or afraid of them you are, they're not your enemy. No matter how much you lack in understanding about them, no matter how much they have ridiculed you or oppressed you, they're not your enemy. The battle and the enemy lies in these three things, the power of darkness in the world. That's where the battle lies. And when breakdown happens instead of breakthrough, we need good news. We need good news that'll push us through. And we see that in verse seven with a rescue. This is the third R. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I love that verse. I love that verse that as the enemy is attacking God's people, God's voice is the one that thunders. Psalm uh, Psalm 29 or 26, I think it is, says that God's voice thunders over the waters. His voice thunders. He is the right king of the universe. He is in control, the sovereign over all. He is the one that is in control of every living and breathing thing. He's the master, the Lord and the king, and he thunders. You know what's interesting is that Baal 
one of the gods that the Israelites put away, was often depicted in ancient artwork as holding a handful of thunderbolts. Yeah. But he's quiet. All our false gods are quiet. They can't speak. There's a chapter in Isaiah that mocks our false gods, saying they have ears but they can't hear. How ironic that we craft these gods and expect them to serve us, he goes on to say. There's only one true God. And almost in the face of our false gods, his voice thunders over the water. And look at the effect of God's voice, is that the enemy was confused. How many of us spend so much of our time and energy fighting battles that we shouldn't be fighting? Fighting enemies that we think are uh, are our responsibility to fight when God is the one who fights on our behalf. Now, I have to be very clear about this so we don't twist this verse. Our enemy is not the Philistines or modern-day Philistines, okay? Our enemy is not people. Our enemy are the works of darkness, the devil with his lies, enticements, and deceptions. But notice, even then, God fights our battles for us. He fights the battles for us. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God comes into our mess, into our wars, into our battles, and he fights on our behalf. And this isn't the only place where we see God fighting for his people. I want to turn your attention for a moment to another Old Testament passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Same, different, same situation, different people. Same type of thing. Israel is surrounded on all sides by the enemy. Multiple fronts, enemies everywhere who are looking to decimate them, destroy them, tear them apart, wipe them off the face of the earth. And Jehoshaphat, the king of that, at that time, starts to look to God. I want to read you a few verses, not the whole thing. Verse 3, it says, Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. First thing that Jehoshaphat does is he turns his attention towards God and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. This keeps turning up. Every time people want to press more into the Lord, they seem to get into the habit of divesting themselves of things that are entangling them. He goes on. Look at verse uh, 12. Well, I'll tell you verse 12. Verse 12. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. This is Jehoshaphat's prayer. We we can't can't face it. How many of you have prayed that under your breath at times? I can't face Monday. I don't know what I'm going to do about this following week. I don't know what I'm going to do about this relationship. I don't know what I'm going to do about this situation, about this black hole that I feel myself falling into like a never-ending abyss of desperation and discouragement. I don't know what to do about it. Same prayer that saints of old have been praying for centuries. Jehoshaphat prays it right here. We have no power to face what is attacking us. But look at the next line. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, God. That should be a prayer. All of you take into your next week right now. If there's nothing else you remember today, remember that. I don't know what I'm going to do about Monday, but I know this. I serve the God of Mondays, and my eyes are upon him. Keeps going. In verse 17, uh, excuse me, in verse uh, 15, a prophet comes up and speaks to King Jehoshaphat and to all of Israel, saying, and encourages them, saying this. Perhaps this is what some of you need to hear today. 
This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, because of what you are facing. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Some of us are fighting battles that aren't ours to fight. Verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17. You will not have to fight this battle. Some of you need to hear that right now. There's battles God wants you to drop right now because they're not yours to fight. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. I want you to hear two things in that. One, we don't have to fight the battle. Two, we still have to be engaged. He doesn't say, hey, you won't have to fight this battle. Go home and take a nap. He says, you're not going to have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm. You're at Mizpah. Take up your outpost. Get ready to see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And then he tells them to engage. And the way that Samuel tells, or excuse me, Jehoshaphat tells Israel to engage is the most bizarre expression of battle I've ever seen in my life. I'll read it to you. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. Actually, I read that wrong. It says, with a very loud voice. They started praising God in the midst of the worst day of their lives. Verse 21, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Do you hear what's going on? They're in a battle for their lives. And Jehoshaphat does the unthinkable. He says to the warriors of Israel, you take a back seat and he calls the worship team up to the front and he says, lead us in some songs of praise. And all of Israel with a very loud voice exalts the name of God. Verse 22, and they began to sing and they began to praise. For everybody in this room who wonders, why do we sing so much? Why don't we just get to the sermon where the real stuff is happening? Why do I have to mouth words and sing and all of that emotional stuff? I'll tell you why. And they began to sing and praise and the Lord set ambushes against their enemies and they were defeated. They sang and praised, and the enemy was thwarted. They were confused. They were routed. They turned on one another. Now, for them, it was the Philistines. For us, it's the works of darkness. Here's a spiritual principle for you. When God is exalted, the devil is pushed down where he belongs. Because God is the one fighting for you. Colossians says that it was Christ Jesus on the cross who made a show openly of the devil. Jesus humiliated Satan. We don't need to do anything. All we need to do is walk in the victory that has already been brought onto us on our behalf. Part of the way that we do that is showing up boldly and confidently for Christ's sake and saying, you are exalted among all the heavens. You are exalted among all the gods. There is nobody like you. I choose you over everything else in my life. And as you lift up the name of Christ, you'll notice that other things start to fall down to the wayside. As the people of Israel, as the people of God, sing and exalt the name of God. 
The devil is thwarted. Some of you have been listening to the enemy's lies for far too long because that's been your mentality. I need to fight the devil. I need to fight my own thoughts. I need to fight my circumstances. I need to fight, fight, fight. And you've been slowly getting sucked into the tractor beam of those lies and deceptions to where now you're not even putting up a fight. You're now replaying those lies in your mind and you're entertaining those thoughts and you're enslaved to them. Some of us have been listening to the enemy's lies for far too long. We need to start hearing the thundering voice of God that speaks over the waters and through the enemy's lies and says, you do not have to fight this battle. Put your eyes on me. For people in this room, perhaps, to say, maybe even for the first time, I have no idea how to face Monday, but my eyes are on the God of Mondays. And the reason that the people of God can engage in the battle in complete and utter faith in their Lord, worshiping him even, is because they remember that he's always been faithful. This is where we end, remembering. It says in verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. The Lord has helped us up to up up until this point. It was a common practice to use stones back then to mark off boundaries. They didn't have city blocks or uh, firewalls or real estate agents. They had rocks. Proverbs 22, 28, for example, says, do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Don't move the rock. And so people with plots of land would carve out their own property by putting rocks in corners to mark off what was theirs. Right here, Samuel is marking off what is his like you need to do. He sets up an Ebenezer. Ebenezer means literally the stone of help, the stone of God's help. And he describes it, the reason that he's doing it, he's setting up a stone of God's help to remind Israel and himself, till now the Lord has helped us. He has helped us up until this point. Now, I think this is really interesting that if you were to go back a couple chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, there's another Ebenezer. But I don't think it's the same one because it's about 20 miles away. And the story of that Ebenezer is one of despair and discouragement and disobedience and defeat. It's where Israel turned from God and they got their rear ends kicked by the Philistines. But the second Ebenezer is marked by something else. It's marked by God's faithfulness and God's victory despite their mistakes. It is, in a sense, God redeeming their Ebenezer. And this isn't nostalgia. This isn't Samuel telling Israel, let's remember the good old days back when God was good to us. He's saying this for a futuristic reason. He's saying God's past reputation is our future assurance. If God could take us to this point, then he could take us to this point. And if he could take us to this point, he could take us to this point. And if he could take us to all of these subsequent points, he could take us anywhere because God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Samuel, in other words, is saying, this is our reason for doing anything. This is our reason for setting up an outpost where we're saying with God, you're fighting our battle, so we're going to get rid of anything that entangles us. God has always been faithful, even in those seasons in our life 
where it feels alone and isolating and discouraging and despairing. He's still there, he's still active, and he's still present. I say all of this, chose this passage, because I think there's some old rocks in your life that you don't want to think about. Places of defeat, discouragement, disillusionment, desperation. And the last thing you want to think about is those old places, those old rocks, those old Ebenezer's. Maybe you're angry at me right now because I'm reminding you of them. But it's God who wants to take you back there. And not just to replay old situations and old seasons of hurt, but to redeem and to restore those places of hurt. Because God has forward movement for his people. But sometimes to move forward, we have to first go backwards so that God can heal some of those old past wounds. I know we have them. We all do. One of the reasons that we practice fasting is to clear our hearts of the clutter so that we can hear and be present to God. I'm actually going to give you two practices today, and I'm going to ask Robert and Colette to come out here as we transition into song. One of them, as you probably expected, is fasting. I want to invite you to consider it, even if it's small. Even if it's as small as like, I'm not going to watch TV for five minutes on Saturday. Whatever, whatever God has for you. Or whether it's big, like I'm going to turn away from all of this stuff that my heart loves. The practice is for between now and April 18th, we release room in the backpacks of our heart so that God can take first place. But before we do that, and perhaps some of you have already started that journey, before we do that, what I want to do today is to strengthen your resolve by awakening your heart to God's faithfulness so that when you step out into Monday and you engage in that outpost and you divest yourself of the things that are cluttering your heart and mind and you encounter resistance in this life and you're threatened with giving up, you'll remember that God has brought you to this point. He'll surely see you the rest of the way. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want you to think of a recent and significant act of God's faithfulness in your life. Even for those of you in this room who've had really hard, difficult lives, and it's hard. Even if you're like, well, I'm alive right now. There it is. I want you to look for and find a recent and significant, right now, a significant act of God's faithfulness in your life. And when you find that, I want you to come up with one single word to describe it. As a way of taking a, an entire story of God's goodness and faithfulness and capturing it in a single word. And when you come up with that word, as we sing, I want you to feel free to come down the aisles towards the walls and you're gonna see a stack of rocks I want you to grab one. This is your Ebenezer stone. These rocks represent your life, where you've been, where you've come from, what you've done, what's been done to you. And perhaps the moment that you think about it, your mind gets flooded with the sense of defeat. 
as the enemy resists the work that God is doing in your life. He begins to give you scripts, replaying times in your life where you failed, you failed God, you've fallen away. It's just like the devil to oppose people just as they're on the cusp of breakthrough. And he might be lying to you right now, but I'll tell you what, we're going to adopt a new script this morning. And we're going to replay in our minds not what the devil says, not what our flesh says, not what the world says, but what God says, that he is faithful. So I want you to take that word of his faithfulness. And it could be anything. It could be a single word like love. In fact, I'm going to write one on this one. I'm going to write good for all sorts of reasons. It could be a single word. It could be a, uh, a word that nobody else understands. That's okay. It's not for us. It could be a date. Maybe there's an event in your life that God moved in your life and you want to remember it. Whatever it is, I want you to take that word and I want you to write it on the stone. And I want you to set up a new Ebenezer today. I want you to come over here where you see these cylinders and I want you to stack them. If you can't reach, put them on the outside, stack them in there. As we worship and as we sing about God's faithfulness, I want us to also have a visual representation of the goodness of God. God has been faithful to his people. God is faithful to his people. God will continue to be faithful to his people. And no matter where you are, are at right now, no matter what you're going through at this moment, let this visual representation be for you, a sign that God brought you this far and he brought you this far, and he's going to keep bringing you farther, and he didn't just bring you this far just so that he could leave you in the valley between Mizpah and Shen. He brought you this far because he has a plan for every single person's life in this room, and he's not going to be thwarted by the devil or by you, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. After you do that, let's sing. With this in mind, when the voices of God's saints rise to Christ, there is a trembling that happens in the spiritual realm. The work of the Christian is to make much of Jesus Christ. So you remember how he's been good to you? Let that be training as you set out to fast, to pray, to give. And let's end this morning together singing about his faithfulness. Y'all with me today? in our hearts a hunger, God. Reveal yourself to us. Don't ever let us look back. In Jesus' name.